Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. We hope that this message will challenge you and encourage you on your journey of faith. If you would like to learn more about Journey Church, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and online at thejourneychurch.cc. Now enjoy the message. All right, so we are starting a brand new series. I've been telling y'all it's coming, man. It's coming. And so the series that we're starting this week is called what? Bring that slide. It's called Hellology, y'all. Come on, somebody. I know it. I know it. I was going to call it what the hell, but I felt that that was a little controversial. So I call it hellology. And why is it called hellology? Because it's the study of hell. Now, don't worry. If you're having a PTSD moment right now, you have triggers about sitting in church and hearing about the, the, the hellfire and brimstone you grew up in, do not worry. I promise you're going to get information that's going to help you process that and continue to see God as a good God. Amen. Okay, so we are starting the series, Hellology, today. You know, I gave my life, some of you guys are familiar with this, um, but I gave my life to Jesus Christ when I was 16 years old. That's all right. I gave my life to Jesus when I was 16 years old. Now, you want to know something incredible, guys? Check this out. Check this out. Here's something incredible. I learned, I learned John 3.16. How many of y'all know John 3.16? Right? I learned John 3.16 right here in this church. Isn't that incredible? Right here in this church. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but just listen, focus. John 3.16, right here in this church when I was like eight or nine years old for a king-sized Baby Ruth candy bar. Memorize, that's, how, that's how the Baptist VBS got you, right? They're like, you want a Snickers? Yes. Memorize this scripture verse. Okay. What kid's not going to memorize something for a king-sized candy bar, amen? And that was me, eight or nine years old. I memorized John 3, 16. But you know that I did not give my life to Jesus Christ at eight or nine years old? It actually took another eight years before I gave my life to Jesus. I got invited to a prayer meeting. I got invited to a prayer meeting. And, and, and when I walked in the prayer meeting, it was an incredible moment. It was incredible. There were all sorts of kids gathered around, and they were talking about God and how good he was and how amazing he was and how he was answering prayers and how certain people were coming to know who Jesus was. And, and it, was, it was incredible. And, and this guy named Russ Monroe, I, I, I've, I've talked about him before. He comes over to me, right? I'm all sorts of emotional, never, never was raised in church or anything like that. And, and Russ kneels down, and he says to me, I'm sitting on the couch, and he says, hey, man, have you ever accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I said, no, I don't think so. He said, do you want to? I said, I think so. And he said, listen, there's a scripture in the Bible, John 3, 16, and this is what it says. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know what was incredible? I was able to help finish that statement with him because I had learned that verse when I was eight years old. I was able to finish that statement. Didn't even have a relationship with Jesus. Now, I had this this relationship moment, this, this, this conversion moment. Where, where Russ tells me about a God who absolutely loves me, desires a relationship with me, cares about me. But do you know what Russ left off of his gospel presentation? Do you want to know? For God so loved the world. They gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Doesn't that sound great, Chris? Yes, it does. Now, if you reject it, he's going to send you to hell. He left that part off. He didn't tell me that part. It wasn't a part of the gospel presentation that, that he, 
Talk to me about it. Now, now listen, I understood there was some type of hell. I mean, in our culture, you don't even have to go to church. In the American culture, you know there's a place called hell, right, that really bad people go to. I mean, that's what you've heard, right? Or at best, you've watched horror movies that depict a place called hell. This threat of hell was absent in Russ's gospel. And I have found, hear me, church, I'm going to do a lot of teaching today. Do you mind if I do some teaching? I usually preach, but I'm going to do a lot of teaching today, and I want you to take notes. And when I say take notes, I mean just pull your phone out and take pictures of the slides. Amen? It's super easy, okay? Take pictures. The, the threat of hell was absent from Russ's presentation, but I found that over the last 22 years of ministry, many Christians have a hard time presenting a gospel as a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not to say that many Christians don't believe in a place called hell. Well, not really. A place of eternal torments, I would argue that they really don't. Uh, it's, it's that some of us, it's something about this message that creates a cognitive dissonance. Do you hear me? Cognitive dissonance. Let me define that for you. Cognitive dissonance, according to the Oxford Dictionary. I just felt like I should say it like that because it's Oxford. Okay. Oh. I got you. All right, so. Cognitive dissonance. The Oxford Dictionary says, the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes especially to relating to behavioral decisions and attitude change. It's the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, and attitudes. So even though Russ's gospel presentation was absent of hell, I knew about it. Again, I wasn't raised in church, but I knew about it. Culture taught me about it. Culture taught me about it. I was a horror movie buff growing up. Anybody else a horror movie buff growing up? I love watching horror movies. Ever since I was a little kid, I watched them. Ever since my dad. Let me watch Nightmare on Elm Street. I've been a horror movie buff, right? And so I knew all about this place called hell. But do you know when I became scared of hell? I wasn't watching horror movies. I became scared of hell when I started going to church. Isn't that interesting? Then I became scared of a place called hell when I started going to church. It was watching a church play as a new believer. You see, in horror movies, going to hell or going through hell was a result of some demon, some demonic force. But but when I became a follower of Christ, that message was changed. And this enters the widely popular 90s Christian production called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. If you ever got a chance to go to a production called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, then you more than likely have it etched in your mind what you should not ever do, right? Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Let me preface for some of you guys you might have not grown up in that era that we grew up in 
where that was a standard yearly production that you drug as many of your friends from school to who you were convinced were going to go to hell. And so you brought them to this play, and you were like, dude, watch this. Watch this. And after every scene, you looked at which one of your friends is crying because you're like, that's your, that's your story right here. If you've been there, say amen. Oh, good gracious. You've been there. And there were many scenarios in this play. It was 90 minutes. Now, if you think I'm making this up, I'm so not making this up. If you go to YouTube and type in Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, you can watch any horrendous production of it. You can. 90 minutes long. Ah, no. 90 minutes of it. And, and, and there were many scenarios. Listen, there were many scenarios in which teenagers would come to their deaths. They would die. Teenagers. Always teenagers because it was a youth event that you brought hundreds of teenagers to. So it's always teenagers. In, and there were many scenarios in which teenagers would come to their death. It would be partying scenes. It would be a car accident. It would be a drug overdose, a sickness or something. And at the end, it would flash. And, and those who had, had, had accepted Jesus as their Savior by praying a particular prayer, when they died, they, they, they came face to face with God. They were led into heaven's gates. But those kids who had not prayed the magic prayer, those kids, even if they were good, who had not prayed the magic prayer when they died, you know what happened to them? They went to hell's flames. But, and I'm trying to make this light, because when you talk about a topic like hell, you got to throw some stuff in there. You know, you got to make it a little bit light, because it's not, it's going to get heavy, and no one's coming back next week. Right? But this is what would happen. The person who did not know Christ, who had not prayed the prayer, at the part that the lights would go dark and the lights on the stage would turn red and all these people dressed in all black with face paint and stuff on would come, come, come out like this. They were all sketchy looking and, and then what they do is they would surround the person who has not made that confession of faith and, and they would grab a hold of them and they would begin to pull them down as if they were pulling them down into hell and the person would be screaming over and over again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I, I want to do it again, I'm sorry, I believe now, I believe now. And then it would just, oh, and the music would crescendo and then they would be like, Phew. next scene. Miss Christine, can I tell you that? That's what they used to bring us to. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. Do you know what we call that today? Child abuse. That's what we call that today. It's child. It, the 90s were crazy. And that's what they, do you know what this, this, this was, this was, this was evangelism, but it wasn't even, it was, it was, it was evangelism by terrorism. It was evangelism by terrorism. And when the night ended, listen, when the night ended and, and, and the pastor came up, and he would come up and he would say, maybe you found yourself in one of these scenarios right here. We're going to open the altar, which is just the front of the stage. That's what they called every front of the stage was the altar, you know. We're going to open the altar and if you would like to come down and accept Jesus as your Savior and not go to hell's flames, you want to come now. And they would open the, the thing up. And do you know what would happen? The entire room would go down to the front of the altar and, and give their lives to Jesus. Jesus. 
out of fear that the one who loved the world so much and gave his only son would reject them and send them to hell if they didn't say the right prayer. That's what it was. Now, can I tell you that this concept of hell, and I would just ask you this. Some of y'all are kind of on the edge of your seat. You're kind of uncomfortable right now. It's okay. How many of you know, I'm always going to tell you something, share something with you that's going to stretch you. Amen? So, and, and what's the number one rule here, Journey? You can believe it or you don't have to believe it. Amen? You can still show up to a Journey night on Wednesday night, 630, eat food, break bread, talk about each other, pick on each other, and still be a part of the church and believe in that type of hell. Amen? You, you can. Come on, you can. We missed you this Wednesday, Miss Christine. You were not there. So... So can I tell you, listen, can I tell you that this concept of hell breaks my heart for multiple reasons. Number one, let me tell you why. Number one, it affected me tremendously because it gave me trauma. It didn't draw me closer to the love of God. It created a fear that if I ran, he would come after me and throw me away. It created a fear that ran below the surface, much like one who has endured abuse but can't get away from the abuser. The second reason is it, becomes a, it became a focal point, it has become a focal point, listen to me, of the American gospel message. Because even denominations that are outside of America, who hold the same values, maybe even the same uh, atonement theories, and we're going to talk about that later, maybe even some of the same doctrines, do not place as near of a heavy emphasis on the portion of hell that American gospel does. Okay? It's become the focal point. And Jesus has essentially been reduced to the monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card. People follow Jesus for what he has done. If people who say, hold on a second. People follow Jesus or should follow Jesus for what he's done and not from what he can protect us from, that being God. Because at the end of the day, most Christians have that view. They have a view that Jesus dying on the cross did so to protect us from God. They do. If you've ever come up in church, you've ever heard that Jesus died on the cross to bear uh, your sin, to, to, to bear the wrath of God for your sins, then Jesus died to protect you from God. The same God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So hang in there. I know I'm presenting a lot of stuff to you. You're going to be like, oh, you better explain yourself. I will. You better come to church the next three weeks. Come on. So my desire over this series is to set the record straight regarding, listen to me, most importantly, the nature of God. And secondly, the role of hell. So in today's message, I'm going to start by showing you what you believe about God's nature shapes your view of hell. I'm going to show you that there is not just one view of hell throughout church history. As a matter of fact, the Western Christian view of hell was not even the primary view during the first five to 600 years of the church. 
And we will end by establishing the character and nature of God to better help us shape our understanding of hell as we unpack the next couple weeks. So, like I said, lots of teaching getting ready to happen. You guys ready? All right, here we go. So listen to me when I say this, that our theology, theology is the study of the nature of God. So our theology shapes our doctrines. Our doctrines are the set of beliefs that we have, are the set of beliefs that we hold and that are taught by God, are taught by the church. Do you hear me? I'll say it again. Our theology, the study of the nature of God, shapes our doctrines, which are the sets of beliefs held and taught by the church. So what do you mean? Every doctrine, topic that we believe about Christianity comes back to what we believe about God. Salvation, what you believe about salvation is ultimately shaped by your understanding of God's nature. Does that make sense, church? What you understand about humanity, what you understand about humanity is shaped by your understanding of the nature of God. What you believe about sin is shaped by your understanding of the nature of God. What you believe about the atonement, and and the atonement's just a word for why Christ died, okay? What you believe about the atonement, why Christ died, comes back to your understanding of God's nature and his character, right? The resurrection, the same thing. The actual gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel message we preach, is heavily shaped by how we understand God's nature and character. Most importantly... Our view on hell is 100% shaped by what we believe about the nature and character of God. Now, listen. You ready? For most of us, the view of hell that we know is one of eternal conscious torment. That is, that's the official name. Eternal conscious torment. You can shorten it by calling ECT. ECT, eternal conscious torment. And for some of us in the room, that is the only view of hell that we know. But what if I told you that that view was but one of three main views or three views that was held by the earliest believers of the church? What if I told you that? And what if I told you that even then, today, there are three primary views of hell held by the church? The first one, the first view, is a view called universal reconciliation. Now, if you grew up in evangelical Christianity, you grew up in American Christianity, you were told that universal reconciliation is a, is a sloppy way of abusing the grace of God. That's to say that all roads lead to heaven, and it doesn't matter what you do, you'll end up in heaven with God at the very end anyway, so why worry? That's a really bad definition of what universal reconciliation is, and we're going to talk about that. The second view is eternal conscious torment, or ECT. That's... that's the second view. The, the third view is, is a view called annihilationism. Ever heard of that view? Has anybody ever heard of annihilationism? Let me ask a question. Has anybody heard of annihilation? Let me see if you've heard of annihilationism. Okay, a couple hands. Have you heard of, of, of universal reconciliation? Three, so three for the first one, three for the second one. Have you heard about eternal conscious torment? 
Every hand in the room raised. <laughs> Miss Christine, that's not funny. So, check it out. During the first five to 600 years, there were six primary schools of theology. Okay? Six. Now, six primary schools of theology. Now, let's put this in perspective. Today, we have thousands and thousands of schools of theology, ranging from one guy sitting behind his computer, opening up class and having shop, to multi, multi billion dollar universities, right? Yale, Harvard, things like that. So, thousands and thousands. Back in this time, the first five to six hundred six primary schools of theology. Now, America has some 200 denominations in our, in our country. Some people ask me, well, are you, what denomination are you a part of? Are you a part of a particular denomination? And we say, no, we're not. We're a non-denominational church. Do you know what that means? We're a non-denomination denomination. We're just the only one in our denomination. So anytime someone says to you, I'm part of a non-denominational church, you're like, oh, 201, right? So, so America has some 200 denominations. Do you want to guess the number of denom- Christian denominations in the world today? Do you want to guess the number? How many of you guys would say it's about 1,000? Thank you for being honest. How many of you guys would say it's about 5,000? Okay. How about 10,000? How about 25,000? How about 35,000? Oh, y'all know where this is going. No one wants to raise their hand now. 45,000 Christian denominations in the world. Now, let's put this in perspective. Let's, let's focus. Here we go. Let's cut. Isn't it something? Do you know why we have so many denominations? Because a lot of people. We got lots and lots of people, but we got lots and lots of people who want to stand up and say, my way is the only way, and my way is the right way. Now watch. We're going to talk about this today. So 200 denominations, 45,000. Do you know how many denominations existed for the first 1,600, 1,500 years of the church? One. We're going to go there. So for the first five, 600 years, there were six primary schools of theology. At this time... First century, let's just go to the first century. There was an estimated about 200 million people in the world in the first century. For clarity, that's about 150 million less than, what, than the, occupa- uh, uh, of the population of America. Do you hear me? Okay. How many of y'all are geeking out right now? I love this stuff. All right, two people. The rest of y'all got to get over it. Listen, world population, first century, 200 million people. Do you want to guess the population of the world today? Eight billion. Eight billion people. Eight billion. 7.9. 7.9. We round up. Eight billion. It'll be eight billion before the close out of the year. So eight, eight billion, right? Eight billion people. Again, let's go back. Six schools. Now watch this. Of the six schools, of the six schools, four of those schools 
taught a view of hell or Christianity called universal reconciliation. Four of them. That was Alexandria, Antioch, Caesarea, and Edessa. Those four schools taught universal reconciliation. One school taught annihilationism. That was the school of theology in Ephesus. Watch this. And one school taught eternal conscious torment. That is the school where? Now watch. Watch. The school in Rome. Why is that important? Because Rome at this time was the what? They were the world power. They had conquered the entire world. And do you know who was responsible for the worst persecution of the church in the first 300 years of the church? Who was it, church? Rome. Rome was. Do you know in 70 A.D., uh, the uh, Jewish historian Josephus recorded that in 70 A.D., the siege of Jerusalem, Rome killed an estimated 1.1 million observant Jews. They had gathered Jews from all over the world who gathered for Passover. And they had zealots that were fighting against Rome on a continual basis, trying to work their freedom. Remember, a zealot, that's what they wanted Jesus to be. They wanted Jesus to be the one who comes and delivers them from Rome, right? And so Jesus is warning them throughout their, his ministry over and over and over again, and we're going to get to that next week, about changing the way they respond because if not, they're going to find themselves in Gehenna. They're going to find themselves in hell. And so 70 A.D., the Jews rebel against Rome, and Rome has enough of it. And it's the f- beginning of the Jewish-Roman War, and the Romans come into Jerusalem, and they kill an estimated 1.1 million observant Jews. These were the innocent bystanders. These are not even the ones who were fighting. And they enslaved another 97,000. There was 100,000 100, of them. Y'all still with me? All right, keep, keep listening because I'm going to tie it all together. You ready? So in the first century, there was an emperor named Nero. Y'all say Nero. There was an emperor ne- named Nero. And Nero persecuted the church over and over again. I mean, just horribly. So you remember the, the, the things in history class where you saw or heard about Christians being fed to lions? Remember that? And they were put into the Colosseum and made fun of They were fed to lions, wild beasts. They were tortured. They were crucified, right? You remember that? Nero would actually take Christians and he would impale them. He would dip them in tar, light them on fire, and he would use them to light his garden parties for his dinner guests. That's how bad of a guy Nero was. That's the type of persecution that the church had. Now, that's not even the worst part because another 200 years into this, you have a guy named, let me, let me pull this guy's name up home. Where is it? Diocletian and Galerius. You have these two co-emperors of Rome. They begin to split Rome. These two co-emperors of Rome actually produced some of the worst persecution the church had ever seen. Worse than Nero. Right? And then, that's around 303 A.D. Now, 312 A.D., something shifts. Right? And the new emperor of Rome, while fighting a battle, is on the battlefield, and he sees a vision. And in that vision, he sees the crucified Christ. He sees Jesus. And 
He's convinced that if I um, fight under the name of this God, he will give me victory. Because that's what people did. They fought under gods because if they won a battle, who gave them the victory? God. And if they lost the battle, who made them lose? The, no, God. Their God was not happy with them, so they lost. If they won the battle, their gods were happy with them, and they won. And so on this battlefield, he sees a vision of this guy, Jesus, or a cross, or whatever, and, and he thinks to himself, that's the God I need to be fighting under. He will give me the victory. And so this emperor is a guy named Constantine. The emperor Constantine, not the same Constantine that Keanu Reeves played, different one. They're coming out with a second one for the horror movie buffs in here. But Emperor Constantine, at this moment, he pursues a relationship with Christ. His mother-in-law apparently was a Christian, and so he becomes a Christian, though some would say the motive to become a Christian really had more to do with winning war than anything else. But listen, I digress. Christianity went from, in just a a short few years, Christianity went from being heavily persecuted to becoming the state religion. Do you know how big of a deal that is? becoming a state religion. And, and we would look at that and go, that is awesome, right? We would look at that, that's an awesome thing. Because did it project Christianity forward? 100% it did. Was it the best thing for Christianity? No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Because anytime the church gets in bed with the state, she becomes the state's prostitute. Hear me. And this marriage between church and state produced tremendous benefits for the church moving forward, but it would also become the inroad to incredible corruption. The school of theology that would rise to prominence is the school of theology found where? In Rome. And the primary doctor, or not primary, but the, the view of hell that would rise to prominence is the view of hell held by the theology, school of theology in where? Rome. Right? And so very quickly, Christianity becomes an incredibly powerful force, even so much so that just a couple hundred years later, the, 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 the popes are telling the emperors what to do. And so corruption is definitely there. And we're going to get more to that next week, but I want you to see something. So let's come back. Y'all with me? You learning something today? Okay. Good. That's good. So watch. So Constantine, as, as detrimental as this marriage between church and state was, Constantine did do something incredibly beneficial for the church. So the church was already starting to experience some kind of infighting because, you know, when you get people together, what are they going to do? They're going to fight, right? And so the church begins to experience some of this infighting going on. And so and to avoid the church beginning to splinter, Constantine calls a meeting, a council of bishops. And he says, come on, let's gather together and let's find some common ground that we can all agree upon and make this the creed that we stand upon for our faith. So you can have these views over here. You can have these views over here. That's completely fine. But we want to say as Christians, we want to believe these things to hold true. And so he, he calls for the 
Council of Nicene, and they produced a statement of faith called the Nicene Creed. Okay? If you go to our if you go to our website right now, someone asked me a while back and said, well, why don't you have all your, your, your doctrinal beliefs laid out on your website? I, I wouldn't look in that direction. Well, anyway, why don't you have all your doctrinal statements laid out on, on the website, you know? And, uh, and I said, well, we do. And they said, well, no, no, it's, it's a, a creed. I don't think you said that, but it was a creed. And I said, yes, but that's our doctrinal statement of faith because what that does is it gives us a lot of room to be on a journey. Right? So let me just read to you. In 325, this is the Nicene Creed that was adopted by the church then. This is their statement of faith. It says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and, our, and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he, what church? Rose again. According to the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sin. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. This is what we have this as a statement of faith because it was one of the very first statements of faith by the early church. And again, gives us a lot of room to be on a journey, okay? Even though there were three views of hell during this time, and even though in this council there were people who held all three views, not one of the views made it into the doctrinal statement of faith, the, the Nicene Creed. Do you understand? How many of you noticed that it was missing from there, didn't you? Christians who held opposing views of what happens after death actually got along. They loved one another. And they sat down long enough to craft a masterpiece statement to hold the church together and not to tear it apart. Another creed would be developed by the church and the process was started in 340, and it actually would be finalized around 700 A.D., and this creed is known as the Apostles' Creed. And I think it's hilarious that they did this, but really all they did was make the message version of the Nicene Creed. That's really what they did. They said, let's just reduce it in scope. And, and so this became the operating creed of the church. And, and watch what it says. It says, I believe in God, 
the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and then Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Watch. He descended into where, church? Now watch. Now watch. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father of Almighty. And from thence, thence, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and and the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. So even though the word hell, which, by the way, was not the word hell, really. It's the word Hades, but we'll talk about that next week. Even though the word hell is included in that text, what is not included in that text? <laughs> Burning. What is not included is what hell is. Do, do you understand? What's not included is what hell is. Again, because six schools, three views. Okay? Here, the word hell is mentioned, but again, only as a place where Christ descended, and there is no mention of what hell looked like. The purpose of hell, nor the duration of hell. It was just the place mentioned that Christ descended. And we'll look later in this series that even the word hell is not the word that we think it is. So, y'all still with me? Give me five more minutes. You got five more minutes? This is all introduction stuff to get to the meaty stuff in the next couple of weeks, okay? Now watch. The book of Acts. How many of y'all have read the book of Acts? How many of y'all have seen the book of Acts? How many of you have seen the Bible? I just got to have some hands up somewhere. Okay, thank you. So the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the story of the early apostles, the Acts of the, what, apostles. That's what the book of Acts is. And so the, the writer Luke who is a historian, a doctor, man, just, just a really smart guy, very detailed guy, wants to capture, much like he did with his gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, Luke was a Gentile, not a Jew. He was an original disciple of Jesus. He was an extra. He wanted to capture in detail the book of Luke. He wanted to do the same thing with the Acts of the Apostles. Let me get a history. Let me get a, gather a history of what the church looked like as it started. Y'all tracking me? So the, the, Luke writes this book, Acts of the Apostles, and in this book, there are 10 sermons recorded. 10 sermons, y'all ready? 10 sermons. Peter preaches one, two, three of those sermons, right? If you want to take a picture of that, you can go back and take a picture of it, and, and I'm just stalling so you can take a picture of it and you read it for yourself. 10 sermons in the book of Acts, Peter preaches three of them. Do you know what Peter does not mention in any of the sermons he preaches in the book of Acts? Y'all are catching on. Not once did he mention hell. Let's go to the next one. Stephen preached a banger. I mean, Stephen's message was thorough. It was an overview history of the Jews and the Jewish, Jewish uh, tradition, Judaism, and how they crucified and, and killed Christ. Do you know Stephen's message, 53 verses, Do you know what's not included in 53 verses? Hell. Now watch. Go to the next one. Paul. How many of you know Paul wrote by volume the majority of the New Testament, right? The epistles, Romans, right? 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians and Colossians, Ephesians and Galatians. And it goes on and on. Timothy, you have have these 
books he wrote. Paul preaches, what, one, two, three, four, five, six. Paul preaches six sermons. Do you know what's not mentioned in a single one of Paul's sermons? Tell. This is the foundation. This is the beginning of the church. And what is absent from the beginning of the church is what has become the gospel message in America, which is hell. So some of you are thinking, well, what do you believe, Pastor Chris? You'll find out. But you, but you got to come every week. You got to come every week. So like I said earlier, there are three views of hell in the church. Now, this is very, very important. All three views, all three views, universal reconciliation, eternal torment, annihilation, all three views have these four, thing, four things in common. Public school. Four things in common. Number one, those who die without Christ will suffer in the afterlife. Did I I give that to you? I did give it to you. It's up there on the screen. All right. Those who die without Christ will suffer in the afterlife. Number two, hell involves God's judgment of sin. Number three, God's judgment will involve some form of fire. Number four, the fire of hell will not be a pleasant experience. Now, now, here's the thing. Let me, let me go through. We're going to get a little bit more. I said five more minutes. Five more minutes. Y'all, just bear with me. I'm not even going to get to the other half of this, but five more minutes. So, eternal conscious torment. Just, just go ahead and snapshot this. Do we have to have it up there for you? So listen to this, eternal conscious torment. That is the belief that those who die without Christ will suffer for an eternity separated from God in the lake of fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, anybody who holds to the view of eternal conscious torment does so with these primary verses. There are biblical ver- there are verses to back up this belief. You see them they're on the screen. And there are early church fathers who actually held these beliefs. Now listen, Tertullian, that's a fun name. Tertullian held these beliefs. A guy named Augustine or Augustine held these beliefs. Now, do you know who was working in the school of theology in Rome that kind of helped solidify this? It was Augustine. Okay? And then you have a Thomas Aquinas a church father who also held these beliefs. Now, the second one, annihilationism. Annihilationism is the view uh, that, that those who hold this view hold that those who die without Christ are doomed for a season of suffering in hell until all of their sins are atoned for, and then they are destroyed forever and they cease to exist. That is annihilationism. Do you know what's becoming more and more accepted in America? Annihilationism, because people are realizing, man, this eternal conscious torment thing, that's kind of bad. Yeah. Now watch. The church fathers, okay, they're the biblical text. They base their view on this based on those texts you see on the screen. 
And the early church fathers that held to this are Barnabas, Mattis, Hermes, Hermas, and Irenaeus, right? Those, those are the fathers that held that view. Now, last one, universal reconciliation. This view holds that those who die without Christ will, like those who are in Christ, pass through the fire, which is designed to purify, refine, and restore everyone into right relationship with God. Eventually, everyone will be redeemed and restored to a right relationship with God. The biblical texts to support that are right there on the screen. And the early church fathers who believed that, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Gregory of Nazine, Gregory of Nassis, those guys, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil the Great, uh, Theophilus of Antioch, Theodore of that place, and Didymus the Blind, <laughs> and Diderus of Tarsus. Those are the church fathers that held to that view. Now, again, six schools of theology, three views, four of them held to ultimate reconciliation, one held to annihilation, one held to eternal conscious torment. Each of these views backed by Scripture, hear me, the only problem that you will run into or the main problem that you're going to run into holding any of these three views, any of them, is this. That in order to hold these views, you have to, one, ignore the other scriptures that convey the other two beliefs. Or have a way of interpreting scripture that allows those beliefs to line up with your belief. That's, that's where you're at. Every, no matter what view you hold, no matter what view you hold, that's what you're going to deal with. And so next week, we're going to spend time unpacking eternal torment. I promise you, it's going to be good. I promise. The following week, we're going to unpack annihilationism. And the final week, we will unpack universal reconciliation. And that's going to be fantastic as well. But I want you to remember something. All three of these views are biblical. In that, you can find scripture to support them. But just because something is biblical does not mean it's Christ-like. You hear me? Just because it's biblical doesn't mean it's Christ-like. Listen, last thing I'll say. John, forget all the scriptures I had. We ain't got time. Listen, last thing. Our theology will shape our doctrine. Our theology will shape our doctrine of hell. And Jesus, listen, is perfect theology. Jesus is perfect theology. So, week one of our Hellology series. That wasn't bad, was it? Did you feel like you learned something? Come on, somebody. You all ready for next week? Better. I see who's here this week. I'll be looking for you next week. Let's go ahead and we'll wrap right here. You can relieve Miss Dream of your kids. She does love them. She does, and they love her. 
Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your goodness. And I pray, Lord, that everything we shared, everything I talked about today, God, would just, uh, just reverb in our hearts as we go throughout our week. Father, I thank you for a place where people who hold different views can come together and worship the same God. Worship our Father. Worship Jesus. Worship the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for grace. I thank you for bringing this family together, knitting our hearts together as the church. Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Father, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. We'll see you next week, guys.